Hello, data enthusiasts. This is Chris Detzel, and I'm Michael Burke. Welcome to Data Hurls. We are your gateway into the intricate world of data, where AI, machine learning, big data, and social justice intersect. Expect thought-provoking discussions, captivating stories, and insights from experts all across the industries as we explore the unexpected ways data impacts our lives. So get ready to be informed, inspired, and excited about the future of data. Let's conquer these data hurdles together. All right. Welcome to another Data Hurdles. I'm Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. How you doing, Chris? Pretty good, man. It's been a while. How have I you know. been? I've been doing really well. Had some fun projects over the weekend. Actually, last night, we're sending out our holiday cards and wrote a script to parse all of our Christmas addresses, enrich them with USPS data. <laughs> so a little bit of master data management here. Printing out perfect labels. I was just really frustrated that they were all out of order. They were all one line and it was going to look like crap when we sent them out. We were printing these labels. Pretty fun little project. So hopefully we'll get well, that's pretty cool. Returns. Last year we got 10 mails bounce back. So I think we're going to hopefully get none today. I'll be interested <laughs> to know next time we talk. <laughs> get any bounce backs. You're still sending stuff in the mail. So that's pretty cool. Old school and, and funny. We're going to be talking about AI and stuff today. And last time we spoke, there was a lot of drama around open AI, right? Like the CEO yep. gets ousted, goes to Microsoft. And then goes from Microsoft. Now he's back to open source or open AI, whatever. But now everything's died down there. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's back to normal. Like nothing's changed. But then today I was reading yesterday, as a matter of fact, that, and, and you and I talked about this probably six months ago when we first started this podcast, or at least it was one of our first five or six episodes, I don't remember, around how Europe was leading the way of putting laws and restrictions and things like that around how AI is being used and things like that. So we didn't know a lot, uh, but there's some things that have went down now that we know more of. So I think I was thinking about, let's dive into some of that. And let me ask you some questions today about that. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. I'm happy to talk about it. I think what you're talking about is the EU's Comprehensive AI yeah. Act, right? That's what we're going to dive into today. Yeah, exactly. I was hoping you would push that one out since, you know, I couldn't get it out completely. So I have some questions for you. What specific elements define the AI Act as a comprehensive set of regulations for AI development and usage? At the high level, everybody right now is trying to figure out what to do with generative AI, right? specifically. Yeah. And some of this new regulation and this regulatory framework, the EU is now known for being the first or one of the first to push through regulations that will help, you know, continue to focus on how can we have models and use AI in a safe and also a way that protects the fundamental rights of individuals and businesses in the EU. Um, China beat them to it this time. So they weren't the first in the world, but they're the second, I believe. And really what this is designed to do is emphasize the practical implementation and enforcement mechanisms, right? Generative AI is growing faster than any other technology in its past. And it's being used in ways that are different and new. So trying to design a framework right now to keep up with this change 
is incredibly difficult. And I think everybody is struggling everything from Copyright Act to what data can go into a generative model to how it can be used, what applications can it be used, who's excluded and included from these regulatory decisions, right? Uh, If you think about the AI Act, it's a legal framework governing the the AI in the EU, right? And its real purpose is designed to maintain a consistent standard across every state for the proper functioning of how should we be able to use AI, how should we be able to apply it. But there are some really interesting kind of exclusions and ideas if we dive into it. For example, military AI systems are excluded from the AI Act. AI for scientific research is there is some gray areas there on how it can be used. Um, And also free and open source AI versus closed models. There are some exceptions. So the EU has really started to take much more of a risk-based approach and trying to classify AI models into four risk levels. The first one is um, unacceptable, high, limited, and minimal. And so the focus is on these areas of high and unacceptable risk categories. And so if you think about what does a high or unacceptable risk category really mean, some of the language and the verbiage in this is that it can do things such as manipulate subconscious messaging or exploiting vulnerabilities, right, in code and development. Or AI for social scoring or real-time remote biometric identification in the public spaces. These are things that people are really concerned. And it's not even just about generative AI. It's about AI in general. Like, how is this going to impact our society? And is it going to impact it in a positive way or is it going to do damage? If you think about things like... So so quick question. Yeah. So quick question before you, not to get you off, but... Yeah, yeah. Things I kind of look at or have heard in the past is, and I know you mentioned China is the first ones, which I haven't read about yet. Uh, I've read a little bit about the European one that we're talking about today, but, you know, the Chinese, from my understanding, are already, you know, using technologies like this to identify different people. They're putting them in like different classes, okay, they're in different risks and, and doing a lot of weird kind of crazy things already with video and everything else. And, and, and I think this is probably a good thing when you talked about the biometric pieces and things like that. I, I don't know. For me, it, the AI stuff can get scary in that way, because if they're starting to rank citizens amongst, I don't know, let's say a red, yellow, green kind of thing, when, however they're doing it, saying this person will never reach this social economic kind of class. So we'll always keep them down here because of different things. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it just doesn't give people getting off a little bit, but AI can start looking more at that if you allow it. It's just crazy. Yeah. Look, like it is, and this is exactly what the type of scenarios, if you start thinking about how AI in general could continue to be applied in to both significantly help people and also hinder them. A great example is something yeah. like, Social scoring. What if your credit scores were tied to a social score? It might provide 
better classification and better ability to forecast who's going to have good credit versus bad. But is it ethical? And how much bias is involved in making those decisions, right? And these are the real concerns on a lot of these models is when you start to plot out some of the decisions that they make, especially classification models. We saw this in the banking industry 10 years ago, right? Of there is a huge amount of bias in starting to make assumptions of certain people, depending on where they live, how much they make, race and gender. So these are the places that I think we have to tread extremely carefully, especially with generative AI, where it's even harder to pull back and understand how a decision is being made on the model. Because for many of these products, it's very much more black boxed. Yeah, one of, one of the things that concerned me is one of the exclusions you mentioned was military AI systems. I understand what they're or what they're thinking is they're like, oh, military needs all the, the, the benefit or the, the help that they can get with AI and stuff like that. So let's not, ex let's just exclude them from any practices. They could do whatever they want is what that tells me for the most part. Without fail, you could go do whatever. Like it doesn't matter. And they're, so that's concerning, but it's, it's just quite interesting that they would exclude that piece. I don't know if you had any thoughts around that. So I'm sure that there are additional regulations for the military. They're just not published as part of this act. And okay. I think the challenge is when you're in any kind of race from a strategic military perspective, yeah, if another that. country is taking advantage of technology to exploit you in some way, you that it would be putting yourself as a disadvantage if you overregulated what you can do to defend yourself, right? So I think this is constant sure. trade-off that we have with military and probably one of the reasons that is both good and bad that it, things advance so fast in the military is because of the fear that somebody else is doing it or the reality that somebody else is probably doing something that we need to either, you know, be on the offensive or defensive for. So, but yes, it is scary and to what degree does this include law enforcement, right? Does it include all forms yeah. of government? You know, really for each one of these types of policies, you have to take it at a case-by-case -case basis to understand, you know, at the very extremes, what's the best situation where it can provide value and where can it provide a lot of damage and destruction and pain for our citizens? Yeah, I kind of wonder, not to get completely off, is how generative AI exploded earlier this year. I'd say, what, January, February is when that exploded. And then it's definitely taken off and it's still being talked about even at the end of this year, 2023, which is pretty cool. And I think that it will be interesting to see what happens in this next year, especially when you think of, okay, EU now has put together some of these laws and put together like some rules and things and the u.s doesn't usually follow as quickly but you know, so we'll see the other so the other question i have is around legislative process what are some of the key issues during so there's this 36 hour discussion i think amongst the eu uh lawmakers that went on over the last uh several days what are some of the key issues brought up during this discussion do you know yeah a lot of it is what we're talking about today it's balancing 
ethical concerns and the specific bans of certain AI uses and evaluating both the extremes of what are the benefits and what are the negatives or consequences of uh, enforcing a model. And I do think that there is some political ties to all of this as well, right? The U.S. Parliament election is up in June and may be part of the reason that there is more pressure to act fast. But really, if you think about these extreme cases, it becomes very much a gray area with AI. And a great example of this is education, right? For young students, high school, middle school, elementary, generative models like Conlingo um, from Khan Academy, I think that's what it's called, it's an AI model that helps students learn. And okay. if you look at studies and research that has been done on the impact of a tutor has on a student learning, as an example, it is astronomical how much that can move a student's GPA, right? Far into the right. Hmm. However, nice. education is such <clears throat> a delicate space that if a model was designed properly or it's teaching, especially in an area that's not like math or science, where a model could hallucinate, right? What if it starts teaching students something yeah. that is inaccurate or inappropriate? Um, so there are like a lot of history, right? Exactly. Mixing and matching and making shit up. And I do think that there's a huge use case for generative AI and AI in general and helping students become better learners. But yeah, you also look at things like SAT scores in the United States. They're lower than they've ever been, right? And you look at the GPAs of students at a lot of schools, including Harvard, right? And they're higher than they've ever been. The, the graduating class of Harvard last year graduated with an average GPA of 3.8. And you look at that mm. and you wonder, it's constantly moving up over year over year. Is this an impact of AI or are our students getting smarter? And if it's AI, what is this going to do to the next generation of future employees in the workforce if they're using AI to enhance everything they do, right? Like everything, it's how much of this will become a codependency in the education space versus yep. how much will actually enhance a student's learning ability. These processes... That, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we really have to think carefully and make decisions slowly, as, as slow as we can or as thoughtful as we can, because... But at the same time, students are already using these tools, right? So I am a strong believer that we have to embrace AI and make it part of our curriculum. I think that every school, yeah. any school that tries to ban AI is only going to create more problems for both their students and their faculty because everyone is already using it. Um, That's right. However... There is this whole other problem of how much codependence do we want to establish with learning and how much should you rely on AI? We, this, I'm sure that a similar conversation came up with when calculators first came out, right? And it was like, why can't you do this arithmetic on paper? 
It's a new technology that's going to make us learn better and faster and ultimately be smarter. But how much do we want to rely on other technologies to be smarter? And are we making any trade-offs by not studying like the old-fashioned way out of textbooks and learning independently, right? I think when it comes to writing and things like that, the way that schools are going to have to, they're going to have to change. Teachers are going to have to change the way they teach, right? They're trying to catch up. They're trying to understand. Look, teachers don't get paid a lot of money anyways. So this is a huge technology is, I don't know if you remember back in 2020, when all this stuff happened with COVID and things like that, teachers had to start teaching kids at home. So they had to start using Zooms and all this kind of digital technologies that a lot of these teachers that are older and things like that never knew how to use and never knew what to do, right? And so they had to figure it out. Now, I believe that it's not just a teacher thing, but the kids didn't learn as much. And I think that would put a setback back in, but that's neither here nor there. With that said, I do think that with AI type of stuff, this is changing. This is, so teachers will have to and school districts, schools will have to figure out how to um, use AI and teach kids to, to be just as smart as they were before with writing and everything else. Because that's where, and at the moment, generative AI helps is writing. Come up with topics and write in your whole essay. And I do think that's a concern. But, and I do think it's a bigger concern than what a calculator was back in to what math. I, I totally. get what you're saying. But I think this is way bigger and a potentially uh, bigger problem for people to be able to think at, at a higher level. When you mentioned those scores and things like that at Harvard, they're smarter supposedly and everything else. I, I don't know about that only because I'm not sure it has that been going up over the last several years or is it just this last year or two? You know what I mean? That it, so, and then teachers or professors aren't caught up either on some of those things. I think it's a whole entire kind of ecosystem that has to catch up. So it's not just the students, it's the teachers, it's the policies that they're putting into place in schools and everything else. And just will take time. And we, we have no way, all this is just like very broad sweeping correlations. We have yeah. no way of understanding <laughs> what's driving what, right? In the education system. Um. But one thing that I do think is really interesting is observing the younger generations and how they interact with ChatGPT. Yeah. Um, I have a developer I work with, and the way that I ask questions to ChatGPT when I'm doing development is completely different, right? I'm thinking about how to structure a process as somebody who's been yeah. in the industry for years, and I'm using it in a way to leverage a new idea of how I could do something, but I know how to do it already, right? What I'm seeing yeah. newer, less experienced individuals use ChatGPT is they're asking, how do I do X? Provide me the code or the answer for Y, right? And that yeah. is what is scary is that if you do not know how to ask the proper questions, about your yeah. work because you have never built the foundation and the principles. Is this going to be more harm, provide more harm than good for you in the long run as somebody who's supposed to be an efficient um, developer and engineer? Yeah. 
I don't, there is no good answer, but that is the thing that concerns me the most is that people are not looking or do not have a willingness to figure it out. They just want the answer to apply it to whatever they're working on in the moment. Yeah. And that's the piece I, that I agree with you. The most. Yeah. Well, and I'll give you a little example just because I think it's uh, relevant is a couple of weeks ago, I needed some CSS code. And I think I brought this up to you. And I said, I asked ChatGPT, hey, I want a CSS code to do this, that, or the other. And I don't know anything about even tiny developments like CSS. It gives me some code. I put it in and it didn't work. <laughs> you know what yep. I mean? And I'm like, okay, I'm doing... And I'm smart enough to know that if I just was somewhat dangerous, if I was just knew some coding and understanding of that, then maybe it would have been, if I would have asked it the right question or know exactly what, what I was talking about, it'd give me the right answer. But with what you just said is if this kid is a developer, but doesn't even know how to, isn't asking it the right questions, isn't it? That code could be all this code and you put it into some software thing and it not work, or maybe it works, but it doesn't tie into certain things and just going to mess up really bad later. There's a lot of repercussions that, that I think that that happens. But so to get back to this legislative <laughs> stuff, <laughs> so the European commissioner, I'll let you say her name because I don't, I can't really say it, but what ways does she believe that AI Act will set a global precedent for AI regulations? Yeah, look. The European Union has led in setting regulations from GDPR onwards, essentially, that have influenced the rest of the world. And I think the reason that Europe in general leads that charge, even though China has come out with the first AI act that they came out with, I believe it was in early August, most developers in the U.S. at least are building applications not geared for the Chinese market. But the European Union and EMEA as a whole has always been something that influences most large organizations much more, right? So I think that when you think about why would Europe create such a precedent for global AI regulation is that the cost of developing multiple systems is extremely expensive. And so when the EU passes new regulation, most organizations have to make a change globally to how they apply AI everywhere. And so I think that's why you're, you would think much more of what is Silicon Valley's possible viewing this as restrictive. And even if Europe and China's acts are aligned, whatever Europe does is going to create a much more larger impact on the U.S tech economy than China for the most part. True. Yeah, I think you're right. Do you think Europe has pressure because they, when they came out with GDPR years ago, they were the first to do this and everything else. Do you feel like they they feel like they should be leading in this space because of stuff like that? I feel like there is. I have always had mixed feelings about GDPR and most of the acts that are passed in Europe. I think that Overall, yeah. directionally, they're probably good. I think they have very good intentions, but just like any complicated question and answer, there are lots of intricacies that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. Yeah. 
And I think that maybe we should do another podcast on that at some point, because that is a really valuable topic to dig into. The AI Act is going to have similar consequences. Education is a great example. And with every regulation that we influence, there is a trade-off where we are slowing down innovation. And yeah, I've, maybe I've that's a good thing, about that one time. but it also can lead to inconsequential slowdowns in areas that may do a lot more good than harm. And so I think that this is the yeah. balancing act that is really difficult. And this is why we've had so many amendments to GDPR. We will have the same thing happen with these new AI acts. And it is a sure. learning and evolving experience for everybody involved as to what we are doing good, what is being exploited, and what needs to be rethought. One thing I would tell you is I like the idea of them, legislators and things like that, educating themselves on this, right? I think that's smart. Because when you look back, let's say three or four or five years ago when Meta or Mark Zuckerberg and those folks came into the U.S. Congress and the questions that our congressmen and women were asking these people were just the dumbest questions I've ever heard in my life. And the, the things that they didn't know and the uneducation that they, uneducation around social platforms and how they are used and things like that was just shocking. Maybe it wasn't. At least there's some education going on around in Europe around some of this stuff and, and better now to ask these dumb questions and continue to educate yourself than like the U.S. Congress, for example, being five years, 10 years too late and asking questions that were five or 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Like if it was just, yeah. I don't know if you heard those things back in the day, but to me, I was like, Jesus, these are the dumbest questions I've ever heard. I can't believe you just asked that question. You're a leader in our government and you don't know. And they've educated themselves fairly quickly because they realized how dumb they were. Not to be harsh, but Jesus, I was embarrassed for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, sorry. That's been very blunt in that, but any thoughts around that or do you want to stay away from that? No, look, I think that in general, we've seen challenges with legislators not knowing enough about how technology works. And that's why you're seeing um, private industry start to step in and help advise governments on how to set appropriate yeah. regulation. And like anything, there's going to always be a polarized opinion on whether we have enough regulation or we don't have enough, whether we are protecting yes. users' privacy or slowing down innovation. I think a really good example of that is Helen Toner's she just recently came out about Sam Altman and about this paper that she had on privacy and security, right? That mm. there are always going to be these challenges in this balance and there isn't a right answer. I think that's one thing that's taken me a long time in my career to really understand is that there, these questions are so complex that yeah. we, even if we were to spend years debating, we have no way to really evaluate the impact, the societal impact. And the decisions that we make are best efforts, right? And they're directional. So, and they can be refined and they should be evaluated consistently. And I think that's the piece that we all need to really open ourselves up to is 
every with every innovation, there's going to come exploitation. And as citizens and as regulators, we need to balance those decisions and constantly be reminding ourselves and checking in to see what are the impacts, right? And just like in yeah, cybersecurity sure. training, we had Christoph on earlier and he was a really strong proponent of this is the yeah. laws and guidelines are there for a reason, but you also have to use your best judgment in every situation. Yeah, but like you said, people are going to take advantage of some of that stuff. It just feels like that's just human nature. <laughs> no, it's inevitable. It's weird. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, not human nature, but there are always kind of those bad apples that will will take advantage of it. Um, you mentioned biometric systems earlier and things like that. What types of AI applications are targeted by the bans on biometric systems and the scraping of faces from the internet, which is interesting. Since well, we were talking about AI systems and GDPR earlier. Really, yeah. The big one of the biggest concerns is that these systems are infringing on our privacy rights, and so unauthorized facial recognition is a huge area that we have yet to solve. If you think about all the pictures that you mm. have on Instagram and social media and on dating apps, right? If that information is scraped and used in a way that was unintended that could be really conserving and also detrimental to your life, right? We as a whole need to understand, and this really goes back to more around sourcing data and master data management. We need to understand what transparency requirements are going to compel and influence AI developers to disclose data sources, right? To avoid bias or to at least call out bias if it is a limited data set and, and really be more transparent with understanding what information we use and how did that generate an output or a decision in many of these applications. And I think that if you think of Anthropic versus ChatGPT, they have completely different ways that they've gone about releasing these AI models. ChatGPT was the first to market. They wanted to go fast. They wanted to push yep. down to the bottom as fast as possible, make the technology widely available, widely known. Anthropic was much slower to release. They took their time, but their models also enable you to understand the sources of how a decision was made, right? Yeah, and Anthropic, just so people know, is it like a Claude 2? It's like the chat GPT. Now you have to pay just to use it basically, but it is really good. I really like it a lot too. And so anything you're seeing, companies come out with different approaches. And yeah. the challenge is the market is moving so fast that those who release first right now will probably obtain market share on the latest yeah. technology, right? That's but. Is being the biggest and fastest always the best thing? I think that's the the challenge, right? And think about, not to get off topic again, but think about BARD. Like Google came out with BARD and pretty much a flop. Nobody uses it that I know of or it's rarely used. Now they have to go back to the drawing board and figure it out. I haven't heard much about him since. First came out. I've used them. I'm like, no, this is trash right now. So, so I actually love Google's models. I, I will say that I think that... Bard is in many cases better 
than ChatGPT really? for specific use cases. Yeah. So I don't know if you use Google, Gmail, or these things, but Bard is now incorporated into all of these platforms for paid email addresses. They're just not be making big splashes right now. Like, it, I don't hear them as much as you do some of these others. Yeah, it's true. But I've actually had better results on a lot of specific use cases with Bard. I think that ChatGPT is more broadly used. But when it comes down to doing things like generating a data source in Google Sheets or responding to an email, I've had really good experiences with them. But I okay. do think that they I do... I want to go back and... We should talk more about this. We should probably do a one-to-one -one comparison at some point, but I do think I like that it. Google makes amazing products. I think that they're not nearly as good at stirring up publicity as some of these other companies like Facebook or ChatGPT. And probably one of their biggest challenges is that there isn't enough focus on that. Yeah, when I first started using Bard, it was just not that great. And so I'm going to go back and revisit it. I think that's a good idea. When you look at the impact of this, this European kind of act, what criteria defines like a large, powerful AI model under this AI act? Yeah. So again, this is one which I feel is going to be very subjective, but criteria is yeah. really going to talk about how much data was processed to train the model. How complex is it? when we talk about model design and scalability, but also what is the potential impact on the society and economy, right? If this is an application designed to help doctors make better medical decisions, there's going to be a lot more potential for both positive and negative impacts than say something that's helping someone with, I don't know, a, a marketing campaign as an example. So you're going to see a lot of different angles that people look at these models, but one of the biggest and most important things is the size of data, of the data processed, right? These data cohorts continue to grow and grow. And there's also been a lot of really interesting research done on the environmental impact, which is another thing that was in the okay. AI Act, which they're starting to understand is how much energy does it take to train these large models, right? And what is that carbon offset or carbon footprint that's being created by training these large models? I'm going to ask one last question because I know we've gone over on usually what we usually do. But so how does Europe, like Europe's role in AI governance, how do they envision their role in shaping global standards for AI? Yeah, they want to be a global leader in I would say defining ethical standards, right? Potentially yeah. leading to a more standardized, regulated AI globally. And their focus and their objective is to make something that protects their citizens and all citizens really from abuse. I think that's and negative impacts and making sure that we create a balance as we continue to learn and yeah. grow as to how much this is going to impact our world things are going to change. We're going to see dozens, if not hundreds of amendments to these acts as models get more advanced, as new technology comes Great. out, like quantum computing in the future. Everything that we do and think of today will be different in the future. Did I miss anything? 
Probably. No, I don't, I don't think so. Look, I love these new regulations. I think that they are tremendous in their impact, their long-term impact to the world and how we will think about how we use AI. And at the end of the day, we have to just be, you know, understanding as developers and engineers who want to innovate that at yeah. every choice that we make, even at the micro level, there is both a positive and negative consequence. And we have to think about those and evaluate them at every decision. Michael, thanks so much. It's a really intriguing and educational data hurls today. Thank you everyone for listening. Please rate and review us. Uh, we need the ratings and reviews. But I'm Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks everyone. <laughs>